Hello and welcome to the Medici Podcast, episode 31, The Flood Comes. this episode is posted there should also be a bonus episode for patreon supporters on warfare in renaissance italy war is about to become very relevant to our main narrative you can watch that in other tangent episodes by supporting me on patreon you can also make one-time donations on medicipodcast.com where you can also find pictures bibliographies and more or if you rather support the channel another way, feel free to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast. You can also just share the existence of the Medici podcast with a history buff in your life. So with that, let's get started. The birth of the future King Charles VIII of France was even more celebrated than that of a normal heir. His father, King Louis XI of France, had two daughters, but by that time it would have been impossible even for their domineering father to have them accepted as his successors. Under what was called the Salic Law, daughters could not inherit the French throne. This law took its name from the Salian Franks, the Germanic people that first established the Kingdom of France and gave it its name. In truth, the Salic Law just took its name from an old 6th century law code that regulated property inheritance, and had nothing to do with royal succession. But in the early 14th century, it was a convenient excuse for King Philippe V of France to claim the throne instead of his elder brother's daughter, Jeanne. The excuse became even more convenient when King Edward III of England used the claim to the French throne he inherited through his mother to justify his invasion. By Louis XI's time, the Salic Law was firmly locked in place, so without a son, the crown would pass over to his hated cousin and rival, Louis de Orléans. Unfortunately, since the day he was born to his happy parents, Louis XI and his queen, Charlotte of Savoy, Charles VIII was sickly. No wonder Louis XI was so afraid for his son's survival that he kept him isolated and micromanaged his son's governors. Neither modern historians or even the people who knew Charles and were ostensibly on his side gave a flattering portrait of him. I like the way Paul Murray Kendall in his biography of Louis XI describes Charles VIII. Charles VIII was a sickly lad, slightly misshapen in the shoulders, not very intelligent, given to bouts of illness that kept his father in a state of alarm. Also, Kendall describes him as, quote, an inoffensive, pleasure-loving ninny. As for Charles's contemporaries, Parenti wrote about Charles VIII having a kind expression, but also a wispy beard. Meanwhile, Bartolomeo Mazzi described Charles VIII as a small person, ill-favored, 
big shoulders, an aquiline nose, splay-footed, web-fingered. Plus he had the habit of talking to himself in a low mutter. But to be fair, Charles was never given any opportunity to gain actual leadership experience. Despite being the heir apparent, Charles VIII never got much of a quality education, made all the worse by the fact that he might have had what we would call today a learning disability. Whatever the reasons, Charles was said to have been practically illiterate as an adult, nor did his father ever give him an opportunity to assume just a ceremonial role. Instead, Charles was left to busy himself with breeding and training hunting birds. But while our man Piero de' Medici cut a more dashing figure than poor Charles, the two men did have much in common. They were both young men who were suddenly called upon to live up to the legacies of fathers who were both legends in their own lifetimes. Lorenzo the Magnificent was, well, Lorenzo the Magnificent. And Louis XI had ended the Hundred Years' War and secured France's international position. Now it was left for Charles to prove himself by going on the offensive. Since from his Angevin ancestors he inherited ancestral claims to both Naples and the old crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, Charles had the perfect pretext to try his hand at succeeding where his legendary ancestor, Charles d'Anjou, had failed by making a French empire in the east. There were other, more practical reasons, of course. Italy was still rich, and it was still seen even by the French as the most civilized region of Europe. Even so, everyone knew how deeply its political divisions ran, which also made it a tempting target. Also, one of Charles' chief advisors was Bishop William of St. Malo, whose family just happened to be a clan of wealthy merchants from Tours, whose business depended on trade from Italy. Another viper whispering in the new king's ear was the Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, the great-nephew of Pope Sixtus IV and the archenemy of Rodrigo Borgia, a.k.a. Pope Alexander IV. After Alexander IV's election, Giuliano fled Rome, fearing that he would be imprisoned on trumped-up charges or worse. He openly encouraged Charles's ambitions for Naples, and, oh, by the way, while you're in the neighborhood, why not host a synod of the church and depose Alexander IV? Charles was also in contact with Ludovico Sforza, whose diplomatic relations with Naples had deteriorated after the death of his niece, Ippolita Sforza, who had been married to the heir to the throne of Naples. Sforza promised Charles safe passage through his territories if he decided to invade. Still, it's important not to discount how much Charles himself really wanted this crusade. It was even said he had dreams supposedly sent by God, that saw him claiming his rightful inheritance in Italy and liberating the Holy Land. Now, if you read even modern accounts of Piero de' Medici's actions at this time, the story goes something like this. Piero was so inept and irresponsible, he simply let the alliance with Milan fall apart and let himself get completely taken advantage of by his wife's Neapolitan family. This wasn't quite the case. Piero was never oblivious to the danger he was in. As news of the likely French invasion trickled in, Piero told one of his confidants, 
I am so depressed that I speak and write as though in a dream. I don't think anyone in my state can live. I am so melancholic. I hope, God willing, there is a good outcome, since I do nothing all day but stare out fixedly. Granted, he wasn't just talking about his political situation, but also some problems he was having with his mistress, who we only know by the letter R. But we do know he had received detailed reports that the French had cutting-edge artillery that could down the city's walls in a matter of days, and was personally horrified by what he heard. More to the point, though, Pietro didn't just give up on the alliance with Milan. In fact, he kept up a correspondence with Ludovico Sforza, trying to get him to renew it. The problem was that Pietro was stuck with a bad deal his father had made on behalf of his son-in-law, Francesco Chibo, who really was the Billy Carter of the Medici family. See, Pope Innocent IV had asked Lorenzo to loan Francesco some money so he could legally buy some land that belonged to the papal state. After Pope Innocent's sudden death in the election of Alexander IV, who was not so fond of Francesco, Francesco sold the land for some quick cash he could use to get himself out of the new Pope's reach. The buyer of the land was Virginio Orsini, one of Pietro's in-laws. This caused Alexander IV to blame the Medici for the whole loss of the land. And it was a major reason why the Pope ended up siding with Milan and the French. While officially Pietro threw in with Naples, in his letters Pietro was also desperately trying to get in good with the Pope in Milan. He supported and through the Medici Bank financed Pope Alexander's efforts to secure a Spanish dukedom for his son Juan. To Ludovico, he offered to have the Signora of Florence officially recognize him as the rightful Duke of Milan. Pietro was, of course, writing these letters behind the back of the King of Naples. But at the same time, Ludovico Sforza and King Charles were carrying on a secret correspondence of their own with Pietro's cousins, the sons of Pierre Francesco de' Medici. Ludovico and Charles promised they would support a new Medici regime with the cousins at the helm, in exchange for making sure that Florence would join the opposition to Naples and the papacy. By the end of the summer of 1494, Charles VIII had secured his flank by signing treaties with England and the Holy Roman Empire. Now his hands were free. Charles led an army of over 25,000 men over the Alps. Even then, Pietro kept playing for time. Historians often present this as proof that Pietro was acting like an inept newbie, but honestly it's hard to tell what choices he had left. He wrote to Queen Isabel and King Fernando of Spain, begging them to intervene. But they wouldn't commit to anything. The Republic of Venice just gave Pietro the cold shoulder. Pietro tried ordering the Florentine envoys to France to convince Charles to instead go straight to war against the Ottoman Empire with Florentine and Neapolitan help. But Charles would not change course. Still, Pietro had reason to hope. He knew that Ludovico Sforza was already having second thoughts about his house guest. As the modern historian Paul Stacer wrote, 
Although he was responsible for inviting the French into Italy and knew they were his friendly allies, he now began to have his doubts about the whole enterprise. Considering the faithlessness of princes, and in particular the French, who appeared to have little honor or principle when their own interests were concerned, he began to have his suspicions about the French king and whether Charles VIII might find an excuse to remove him from power. In fact, it might have been Charles's presence and rumors that Charles would happily replace Ludovico Sforza with his nephew, John Galeazzo, that brought about the latter's all-too-convenient sudden death. The French train was already on a collision course with Italy. Charles sent multiple letters to Piero, demanding that the Signora Florence grant his army passage through Florentine territory. Stuck between his current alliances and his in-laws on one side and the French on the other, Pietro dithered. Meanwhile, the Florentine ambassador to France had found proof that Pietro's cousins had been talking with Charles. The Council of Seventy had the cousins in prison voted to execute them. However, Pietro stepped in and had their sentences reduced to a comfortable exile to a villa north of Florence. Again, this is usually seen as another of Piero's blunders, but killing his cousins could have given Charles VIII a pretext to overthrow him, and might have turned half the Medici party against him. Even so, it was a loud and clear sign of weakness, and became even more of one when the cousins fled their house arrest and joined Charles VIII at his camp. By October, Pietro was no doubt desperate, and became even more so when he learned that the French army had already captured a key Florentine fortress on the Tuscan border, Sarzanello. So, Pietro took a page from his father's book. Without the permission or the knowledge of the Signora, he rode out from the city with a few trusted advisors and servants, and went to meet the king at his camp in person. In front of the stone walls of the fortress of Sarzanello, Piero approached Charles VIII. The king greeted Piero not with friendship, but with calculated contempt. There would be no negotiations between equals or otherwise. Instead, Charles opened with his first and final offer. Piero would surrender all Florentine fortresses on the northern Tuscan border, give the French full control of the port cities of Livorno and Pisa, in order for them to secure their supply lines from the sea, and grant him a loan. Pietro not only agreed to all the terms, but also meekly offered Charles personal use of the Palazzo Medici. According to the French chronicler Philippe de Comines, who was at the French camp during all this, even Charles and his courtiers were surprised at how quickly Pietro caves. They talked about Piero with Philip writes, smiles and laughter. Of course, none of this was done with the consent of the Signora. Pietro did what a lot of people who realize they screwed up massively do, try to put the best possible spin on things. He hosted a triumphal march of sorts in Florence, declaring that he had brought peace just like his father had done after returning from Naples and Pietro dispensed sweet cakes and sugar-coated almonds to the crowd. But this hardly did anything to pacify the popular anger that was threatening to boil over once word of the deal Pietro had made reached Florence, along with accurate reports that French troops 
were going to occupy the city anyway. Decoring Gonfalonieri, Pietro Caponi, decided the time had come to seize the initiative. Declaring that, quote, it is time we stopped being ruled by boys, he sent a delegation to the king, led by a certain friar named Savernola, whom we'll let take center stage soon enough. In the meantime, this delegation in of itself was a bold declaration. It claimed to represent the true government of Florence, and by its existence made Pietro's own claims to represent the Republic in any way totally invalid. The Signora was emboldened by the stone-silent reception Pietro was getting from the Pietro had one last card to play, a contingent of mercenaries led by Virginio Orsini. But such was the public mood that Pietro did not dare let them pass the city walls. So he was quite helpless when he tried to enter the palace of the Signora to give a speech about his delegation to Charles VIII, and found that the doors had been barred against him and his retinue. Someone on the other side told Pietro he could only enter without his bodyguards, and through one of the side entrances, reserved only for servants and deliveries. As Pietro stood outside the doors, his mind no doubt racing, the bell signaling a city emergency rang, just like it did in the days of Walter Brienne. A crowd gathered. At first they were just silent. Then they started chanting Popolo e Liberté and pelting Pietro with insults, stones, and trash. His guards hurried Pietro away. In another part of the city, Pietro's younger brother, Cardinal Giovanni, rode through the streets, shouting the traditional, shouting the traditional slogan of support for the Medici. Pale, pale, referring to the balls on the Medici insignia. A crowd of armed supporters did show up, but they were dwarfed by the mob of angry citizens. It was enough of a signal for Pietro Caponi to issue a decree that anyone who raised arms in defense of Pietro de' Medici would be arrested and executed. Pietro, his family, his youngest brother Lorenzo, and his cousin and adopted brother Giuliano all left the city. Cardinal Giovanni stayed behind to try to rally support, but also to collect as many of de' Medici's treasures, including jewels and rare books, he and his men could carry before he too fled Florence disguised as a monk. The family gathered in the neighboring city of Bologna, while back in Florence a new revived republic was declared. And the unexpected man most poised to shape the future of that republic was a humble Dominican friar. You might have noticed I tried to give Pietro a fair shake. He certainly did make mistakes, like turning a public park into a playground for himself and his rich friends. In trying to appeal to Charles VIII personally while signing off on all of Charles's demands without the consent of the Republic was a catastrophic decision I doubt any of Pietro's predecessors would have even considered. But he wasn't guilty of tossing away the valuable network of alliances his father had carefully built for no reason other than youthful caprice. As some historians suggest even today. Instead, he was inexperienced and caught in an impossible diplomatic situation that even his father would have been hard-pressed to salvage. It is easy to see why Pietro has such a bad reputation. 
Just 14 years before Pietro set out to meet the King of France, his father had returned from Naples as a hero. Now, after attempting a similar bold maneuver, Pietro had not only doomed himself, but his family's entire regime. And yet, it's hard to see how something like this wasn't inevitable, even without the extraordinary circumstance of a French invasion of Italy. The invisible throne of the Medici was always precarious and constitutionally ambiguous. The Medici could have given themselves a title and set up a mini-monarchy like the Visconti in Milan successfully did. Or they could have made the riskier move of radically rewriting the Republic's constitution and giving themselves a hereditary office within the framework of the Republic, like the Office of Stadtholder in the future Dutch Republic, or like a royal office in the constitutional monarchies of today. Otherwise, though, people were just bound to find out sooner or later, that the fragile, see-through throne that Cosimo de' Medici built was never really there at all. Thank you for joining me, and buona notte.